May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my God and my Redeemer. There's a really great Seinfeld episode called The Dinner Party, where the gang gets invited over to a dinner party. And if you know anything about Seinfeld or the work of Jerry Seinfeld or Larry David, you know, of course, it ends in utter disaster after a long, drawn-out series of conversations about nothing. The particular disaster is that Elaine is fixated on bringing just the right contribution to the dinner party, a bottle of wine, a chocolate babka, which George, of course, just cannot understand for the life of him. What for, he says. Elaine, these people invited us to dinner. We have to bring something. Why? Because it's rude otherwise? You mean just going there because I'm invited, that's rude? Yeah. So you're telling me, instead of being happy to see me, they're going to be upset because I didn't bring anything? You see what I'm saying? Jerry chimes in. The fabric of society is very complex, George. George, I don't even drink wine. I like Pepsi. Elaine, you can't bring Pepsi. Why not? Because we're adults? You telling me that wine is better than Pepsi? Huh? No way wine is better than Pepsi. George, or Jerry tries to convince George that putting a two-liter Pepsi on the dinner table isn't the best idea in adult situations. But George ends the conversation with this amazing line. I just don't like the idea that every time there's a dinner invitation, there's this annoying little chore that goes along with it. Of course, if you've seen this episode, you know that by the time they finished their annoying little chore, the bakery was out of the chocolate babka, they were double parked, they're all so stressed out and annoyed that all you see is the door to the dinner party open and Jerry and Elaine are like, here's your wine and your babka, and then they leave. <laughs> Our gospel text this evening is about a dinner party and it reveals to us that indeed, as Jerry tried to explain to George, the fabric of society is very complex. But much like I said last week when we looked at the story of the Good Samaritan, if you've been around church for very long, then you probably already know about Mary and Martha. And you already know that it's bad to be Martha, and it's good to be Mary. You know that it's not much fun to be anxious and frantic, and that it's completely uncool to care too much. But when anybody asks us how our week has been, we all say pretty much the same thing, don't we? Good. Busy. Always busy. In Luke 10, Jesus has been doing a lot. This story comes at the end of this chapter. At the beginning, he sent out 70 of his followers to various villages to preach the gospel, to heal people, to cast out demons. And when he sends them out, he tells them how to assess the hospitality with which they're greeted. He tells them that for those that are willing to hear the message of God's kingdom drawing near, the disciples should stay and continue their work of preaching the gospel in that place. But for those that reject the message, the disciples should wipe off even the dust from their feet from that village and move on. And it's in the midst of their return from their short-term missions trip that Jesus encounters the lawyer that we heard from last week. 
And Jesus, of course, tells the story of a Samaritan who offered true hospitality to a man lying half dead in the road. And if you remember in that story, the lawyer sums up the law by saying that the law is about love of God and love of neighbor. And you could say that the story that Jesus tells him in response to the Good Samaritan is an example of love of neighbor. And now we get to love of God, and it's almost as if Luke is writing this in one big breath, and we find ourselves suddenly in the home of Mary and Martha. And Martha, by the way, has done the exact right thing. She's invited Jesus into her home. This is what he told his disciples to look for, someone who would invite them in and offer hospitality. Now, we don't know exactly how many of his followers are with him, but it could easily have been a dinner party of 15 or 20 last minute. So here's Martha. Maybe she's already picked up the kids from school and tried to chisel off the oatmeal that some kid painted on the dining room table that morning, stopped off at the grocer to get a few extra things, and now she's busy with a chicken in the oven at 400 for 60 minutes and potatoes that need to roast at 350 for 45 minutes and the greens for the salad don't really look washed. And she's already refreshed the drinks for the road-weary travelers, but she can't get in to, to replenish the pretzel basket. Her plates are chipped and mismatched. She hasn't had a moment to put on the dress that she's been saving for just such an occasion. And is something burning? And is Bobby crying? And where the heck is Mary? Well, not only is Mary not helping, she is breaking social norms egregiously. For Mary to be sitting at the feet of a rabbi is like a hundred times worse than you or I sitting up at the dining room table at dinner and clipping our toenails. It's just not done. What is she doing? We're talking about a traditional culture 2,000 years ago. Women don't sit and learn. That's what men do. So Martha, understandably, loses it. She marches into the living room, smelling of leeks and burnt chicken, with sweat in the small of her back and flour caked in her hair, and she walks over to Jesus and she says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And I would imagine the room goes completely silent. Bridget Schultz is an award-winning journalist for the Washington Post. She's also a mother, and she is incredibly busy, to the point that she started doing a research into why is everyone so busy all the time? Am I the only one that feels this way? And that research project resulted in a book, the title of which is Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. And in the book, she describes life as most of us experience it, busy, way too busy pulled in a million directions, letting most people down at least a little bit, and then pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps every morning to start it all over again. But she did this interview with the folks at Mockingbird, and, and in this interview, Bridget has some really insightful statements on why we insist on being so busy. She says, we get busy to cover up and to avoid to avoid thinking about those bigger questions about what's really important and what our life means, and also to avoid those feelings of, I don't know, that frightens me, or I feel inadequate, or I don't feel like I'm enough. We all have some flavor of, I'm not enough. Not good enough, not doing enough, not rich enough, not pretty enough, not smart enough. And as humans, we're sort of wired to compare ourselves to others, and then you can get into that terrible cycle 
where you're just always feeling badly about yourself. This is basically a sort of longer-winded version of what St. Augustine said many centuries ago. He said there are two kinds of life, one involved with delight, the other with need. The one involved with need is toilsome. The one involved with delight is delicious. Jesus, of course, responds to Martha with deep compassion. Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. The words he uses here are sometimes translated as anxious and troubled. It's a word that's used to describe a crowd that is being worked up into riot. You're like an agitated crowd. You're just all churned up inside. But there is only one thing needed. Only one. Mary has chosen what is better and will not be taken away from her. You see, Martha has gotten so agitated that she breaks social norms quite rudely by bringing a guest into the middle of a family dispute. Not great. But Jesus is unflappable. He doesn't condemn Martha, but he doesn't let her continue in her attempt at self-justification. Do you see? Her anxiety as a host reveals that this is about her. It's a reflection of her. It's a moment for her. And Mary is screwing it up. Martha is so self-involved in her attempt at hospitality, this thing that started out as such, such a great idea, but now it's all reflective of her. She ends up caring more about her plan than she does about Jesus' plans. And Luke does a really masterful job of highlighting this irony for us by referring to Jesus three times in four short verses as Lord, once from the lips of Martha herself. If Jesus is really Lord, then his plans take priority, don't they? Jesus, in his compassion and his love, doesn't condemn Martha, but he also doesn't condemn Mary. In fact, he affirms Mary's subversive move into a men's-only club and elevates her status as a full disciple. Now, I know what you're thinking. Somebody has to make dinner, (laughs) right? If you're going to invite the Son of God over for dinner, you can't just sit on the couch and shrug your shoulders. Mm, Right? Anybody ever seen So I Married an Axe Murderer? Old Mike Myers movie? Great movie. Okay, so here's Mike Myers. (laughs) Getting all my 90s references out tonight. Here's Mike Myers, right? He's at his girlfriend's house. He's spent the night. You know, this message is not approved. Okay? Just describing. And he wakes up, and she's gone, but her really weird sister is home. And so he's kind of trying to figure out a way to get out of there, and the sister says, no, 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 no. Let me make you breakfast. He's like, I don't know. And she says, what would you say to silver dollar pancakes, fresh squeezed orange juice, bacon, and Kona coffee? And he says, well, that sounds great. Cut to her pouring him a bowl of Fruit Loops. I didn't have any of those things, she says. You can't give Jesus Fruit Loops, right? I mean, you invite him to dinner, someone has to cook dinner. So what is the one thing that's needed? What is the thing that Mary has chosen, and why is it better? 
Well, if you're like me and you're a little bit thick-skulled, you may not realize this yet, but this isn't really about hosting a dinner party. I cannot tell you the number of commentaries I read that read in here how to treat your guests really well at your house. I'm sure you could get something out of that, but this is about so much more than just the dinner party. It's about what Bridget Schultz is talking about. It's about busyness that obscures reality. It is about living based on need rather than delight. Our Old Testament passage this evening was pretty dark, wasn't it? God is condemning his people for caring more about material wealth than human beings. And we don't have time to get into it, but if you don't think that the sort of obsession with money and clothes and food that's being described in Amos 8 could be a dead ringer for us, then you need to stop lying to yourself. But God says through Amos that the sun will go dark in the middle of the day, that the land will be stirred up and sink like the river of Egypt, that the people will be so filled with sorrow, all their songs of revelry revelry will be turned to sobbing, and they will mourn as if their only child has died. And that's not the worst part. The worst part is that the days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea, from north to east they will wander, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. You see, the one thing that Mary chose was to feast on the words of God and on the word, capital W, of God, who became flesh and dwelt among us. This isn't a story that pits action against contemplation. It's a story that shows us the importance of single-heartedness. It's a story about desire. As we keep coming back to again and again, one of the most fundamental questions about life is what do you want? What do you want? Martha was scattered and wanted all sorts of things, and it's completely understandable, isn't it? Who of us would have acted differently? But Mary wanted only one thing. And we can see from our New Testament reading that wanting only one thing isn't a preclusion from work. Paul tells us that he's toiling with all his energy, all the energy of the Spirit at work in him. Paul gave his entire life survived beatings and threats and shipwreck and stoning for one thing, only one thing, that the world would no longer live in starvation, in the famine from the word of God, but that he would go and bring the word of the gospel. Paul says, I had become the church's servant by the commission God gave me to what? To present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations. Christ is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. It's not about contemplation versus action. It's about single-hearted desire for the one thing that counts. So I'm going to end this evening with a prophecy. Okay, not really. I'm not really a prophet. This is just common sense. 
I would be willing to bet that at some point in the last week, maybe even some point in the last 24 hours, you have felt stressed, anxious, pulled in too many directions, like you're not good enough, your insides have churned up within you like an agitated crowd. And you try to fix it yourself, don't you? Maybe with something harmful, alcohol, pornography, Amazon Prime. Or you may try to fix it with something good. You try mindfulness or yoga or breathing or practicing being present. And oh, for those three minutes, it's great, isn't it? And then it comes right back. The ocean of overwhelm just crashes over you. And I'm willing to bet that you, like me, have started to realize that the harder you try to fix this on your own, the more scattered you become, the closer the stench of failure seems to stick to you. And that's because you're still living a life based on need rather than delight. I just need a new job. I just need a vacation. I just need to relax. I just need, I just need, I just need. In a moment before we come to the table, we're going to confess our sins together. And in the prayer of confession in the Anglican Church, we are going to ask God to have mercy on us and forgive us, what? That we might delight in his will. How do we go about delighting in his will? Well, it begins with the recognition of two things. One, the Holy Spirit has spread a feast for us in the Word and in the sacraments of the Church. An absolute feast. But two, we have eaten so much high fructose corn syrup and canola oil that we wouldn't know what to do with an heirloom tomato if it hit us in the face. Many of you are starving and you don't even know it. So in an effort to sort of get your taste buds going again when you haven't had real food in a while, I combed through the Psalms that if you had just read the Psalm from morning prayer a few days this week, here's the feast that you would have gotten. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name in the dance, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. The Lord takes pleasure in you. All the paths of the Lord are love and faithfulness. The Lord is a friend to those who fear him. And so my eyes are ever looking to the Lord. I will wash my hands in innocence, O Lord, that I may go in procession round your altar, singing aloud a song of thanksgiving and recounting all your wonderful deeds. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I have been helped. Therefore, my heart dances for joy. In you, O Lord, I have fixed my hope. You will answer me, O Lord, my God. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the, des the desires of your heart.
I will rejoice and be glad because of your mercy. You have set my feet in an open place. You have brought me up, O Lord, from the dead. Happy are they whose transgressions are forgiven. Be glad, you righteous, and rejoice in the Lord. Shout for joy, all who are true of heart. As Augustine so beautifully put it, what can you look for from God if God himself is not enough for you?